Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of episode 26 with Reed Brody, the human rights hero who has fought for decades to improve international justice for victims of human rights everywhere and who has played instrumental roles in bringing dictatorial leaders to justice. As you'll recall, in the last episode, we spoke at length about Reed's personal role in bringing justice to the dictator of Chile from 1973 to 1990, Augusto Pinochet. Um, And today we're going to talk about Reed's role in another case that involved the uh, prosecution of a former dictator, that of uh, Kisin Habre from the country of Chad in Africa. Um, Habre led Chad from 1982 to 1990 and left in his wake uh, tens of thousands of human rights victims. And Reed's role in this particular case was instrumental in bringing justice to this one of far too many uh, dictators across the world. Um, Reed once said, uh, Reed once said, and I'm not sure if this quote comes originally from you, Reed, or from somewhere else, but I remember you saying once that um, if, if you murder one person, you end up in prison. If you murder 20,000, you end up in with asylum in Saudi Arabia or something to that effect. And that indeed is what so often happens in this world. There are escape hatches for dictators to escape to. And this has happened time and time again throughout history, where once a dictator is overthrown, they get asylum and are never forced to face justice for the crimes they committed when they were in power. And of course, of the many, many, many reasons why certain people believe in the idea of a unified humanity and a unified global political system based on world citizenship is that those escape hatches very quickly close up. And we are part of the way there with international law and the major developments in international criminal law in the last 25 years, but there's still far too many escape hatches. So we're really happy to have Reed back today, who's speaking to us today from France um, in uh, mid-August 2020. So welcome back to Jointly Venturing, Reed. Thank you very much, Scott. Happy to be back. So you worked for years on the Habre case. Uh, we, fo- we all followed it very closely. So just give us a general overview of how you first got involved with it, how you learned about uh, the situation in Chad, um, your own personal visits there, and maybe just describe for people how the process went. Sure. Well, as you said, it, it, it's a case that I worked on, that I've been working on, because I still work on it, since 1999. Um, and uh, we talked last time about the Pinochet case. And when the House of Lords ruled uh, that Augusto Pinochet, the former dictator of Chile, uh, who was arrested in London uh, on a warrant from a Spanish judge, uh, could be uh, arrested and extradited uh, anywhere in the world, despite his status as a former head of state, uh, we realized in the human rights movement um, 
that we have a tool in international justice and universal jurisdiction um, to bring to book, uh, you know, tyrants and torturers who seemed out of the reach of justice. And, and in the wake of the Pinochet case, uh, we were approached and others were approached uh, by victims and activists from around the world. People say, hey, we have somebody here. Or we, you know, there are many, many cases um, that uh, uh, could have been possible. I mean, you had, you mentioned Saudi Arabia earlier. You had Idi Amin, who was in Saudi Arabia. You have Mengistu of Ethiopia, who was in Zimbabwe. You had Straussner of Paraguay, who was in Brazil. Um, and we were contacted by victims of all of those people. Um, and uh, in, in particular, uh, by a group, uh, human rights groups from Chad, uh, where, as you mentioned, Hassan Habre had been the dictator from 1982 to 1990. And when he was overthrown, uh, he fled to Senegal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the heady moments of, of you know, the post-Pinochet, when we were looking around to see, you know, how we could extend the Pinochet precedent and how we could use it to bring to book others, What was really interesting for us at Human Rights Watch was that Hissen Habre had taken refuge in Senegal. And uh, Senegal uh, was the first country in the world to ratify the the Statute of Rome, establishing the International Criminal Court, a country that has, uh, you know, been in the forefront of human rights development. And and what we thought was interesting was also to break this paradigm. Um, of countries of the North uh, prosecuting uh, leaders from the South. Here was a chance for an African country, Senegal, uh, to exercise international justice, to exercise jurisdiction over crimes that had been committed in Chad. And uh, I met with uh, the president of the main Chadian human rights group, a woman named Delphine Jaib, who came to my office and, and laid out the case of Hassan Habre. He said, you know, when Habre was arrested, when Pinochet was arrested and and, and 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 the House of Lords ruled that he could be prosecuted, he said to herself, why not Hassan Habre? Why not Africa? Right. And so you had the former dictator of Chad now living in Senegal. And we decided to, to you know, he asked us if we could help his victims from Chad bring a case against him in Senegal. And that was 1999. Um, the case has gone through so many twists and turns. And in, in we finally got a trial in 2015, so 16 years later. Um, and I'm not going to go into all of the twists and turns. Um, but it's important to see that, you know, we, the, we filed a case with the victims in Senegal, a Senegalese judge actually arrested Habre uh, and and charged him with crimes against humanity and torture. Um, the case was there was then rank political interference by the government of Senegal. Um, uh, the victims didn't give up though, and that's really the message of the case to me: is that um, each time the case seemed dead. Uh, we came up with a way to keep it alive and build the political condition um, to finally bring Habre to justice. So first, the case was thrown out in Senegal. 
um, uh, we helped the victims file a case in Belgium, which had a long arm universal jurisdiction law. Mm-hmm. The president of Senegal then said that you know he didn't want anything to do with this. He was sending Habre out of the country wherever Habre wanted. Um, we went to the UN Committee Against Torture, Gang Gang versus Senegal, the name of um, uh, Soiman Gang Gang, a very important actor in this case. Right. Um, uh, Soiman was a prisoner of Hissam Habre, um, and as people were dying around him in his jail cells, as he was transferred from one jail to the next, um, he took an oath that if he ever got out, uh, he would fight for justice. Wow. And when Habre was overthrown in 1990 and the prison doors opened, uh, Suleiman began to, uh, you know, get, rally the victims together. And, and this is a country, you know, in the middle of, of the Sahara, in the middle of the uh, Sahel, I mean, it's, it's surrounded by uh, Sudan, Libya, um, Central African Republic, Niger, and, you know, one of the victims said, well, wait, wait, you, know, you guys are crazy. I mean, since when has justice ever come to chat? And, and Soleiman and his, and, his, and his colleagues began documenting the case. And when I was contacted by, by Delphine, we sent people to chat and they met Soleiman and they met his colleagues. And, um, you know, we helped them file the case, first case in Senegal in, in, in January 2000. Um, and when the case was thrown out, um, you know, we, with victims, you know, we said, we are not giving up. Um, we're going to fight this. And we filed the case in Belgium. Uh, when President Wise said he was telling Stephen Harvard to leave the country, uh, Soleiman uh, filed the case. Uh, the UN Committee Against Torture, which ruled uh, in ruling that Senegal could not let him in the country. They had to keep him there unless, until an extradition request uh, was filed. Uh, finally, uh, five years later, after a four-year investigation by Belgium, uh, including a mission to Chad, including during this time, um, I stumbled quite quite uh, luckily, um, on the trial of Hitchin Habre's political police. So when Habre had left the country in 1990, uh, ahead of the troops of Idris Deby, um, he abandoned, well, first, was, the one thing he cared about, what he did, is that he actually emptied out the treasury. Um, he cast a check for everything that was left in the treasury and took that money with him to Senegal. Um, but he left behind the files of the political police. And those files, tens of thousands of documents, um, corroborated everything that Soleiman and the other victims were telling us. There were uh, spying reports, um, uh, daily lists of prisoners in detention, um, of, of people who died, uh, death certificates. This is like a roadmap. And there were thousands of documents sent directly to Habre about the, um, about the case of prison. There was information there. I, I 
important to mention that Hickson Hobway was brought to power in 1982 uh, by Ronald Reagan, uh, by the United States, who saw him as a bulwark against Libya's Muammar Gaddafi. And the United States provided secret assistance to Habre to bring him to power. And then as he turned his country into a police state, as he set up a series of clandestine prisons, as he created a, um, a political police that was his eyes and ears, the police whose files he recovered, uh, the United States and France um, uh, continued to support him. And we found documents showing that many of the most feared torturers in Chad had been trained in the United States, uh, that the United States uh, uh, embassy, uh, the United States political office of the embassy were visiting the secret police headquarters during the height of uh, some of the worst uh, repression in Chad. Uh, and these, these documents really helped us um, build and, 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 and cement the, the factual face of them, I remember um, seeing, did, didn't I see you in a film actually like literally finding some of these documents in some uh, destroyed buildings that once belonged to the authorities there? Exactly. I mean, we were lucky. I was lucky, first of all, with my colleague, Olivia Barco, to find the documents, but we were even luckier, I guess, that we were doing this, we were, we were with a film crew uh, that was making a documentary about the case. And so this moment where we're like going through, we're going to, we're visiting the old headquarters of the political police. And, um, you know, we were doing it really just for cinemagraphic purposes. And, and as we're going through the rooms, we of this abandoned building with cobwebs and, and, and you know, hadn't been touched in, in eight or nine years, um, we, we, we go into these rooms and we're, we're like, you know, skin deep in documents and we start to look at the papers and pick them up and we're like, holy God, this is El Dorado. This is what, and we knew, actually we knew, we knew that there were documents. We just didn't know that they were still uh, in, in, you know, they had not been moved. Unbelievable. Um, wow. And, you know, and, and so we were able to uh, find the documents. It was helpful that we found them on, on, on tape, as it were, because it meant that we were able then to get access, not to the originals, but the government let us copy the documents. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then the documents, we actually cleaned. I mean, we, we, we spent together with a team of the victims. Um, we spent six months, actually. Um, putting the documents, you know, cleaning the premises, putting the documents in order, copying the documents, um, and and taking copies. And later, the originals were used in in, in, in the trial. Right. Um, and, but you know, so we had the factual case was always there, and the question was creating the political conditions. And and that was, Belgium requested the extradition in 2000. So we start the case in 1999. We file it in January 2000. He's arrested in 2000. Case is thrown out. We go to Belgium. Bel- uh, uh, president Wad says to, to uh, uh, the new president, because when, 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 when 
uh, Habre was first arrested. It was under previous president Abdul's youth. New president comes in. Abdullah Wai says, "I want nothing to do with this. Habre is not going to be prosecuted here." Um, uh, we, you know, we were able to get that action condemned by a number of UN bodies. Um, but we still, and and to his credit, Wad agreed with the committee against torture and 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 a and and, and a specific request by Kofi Annan to hold on to Hassan Habre, not to let him leave, because we were we were fearful that he would leave, and we believed he was going to go precisely to Saudi Arabia. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the Belgians then spent four years investigating the case. They indicted Habre. They requested his extradition. President Wad, in his, it, you know, thought he came up with a new not solution. He said, I'm going to ask the African Union what to do. This is not a Senegalese question. I'm giving the dossier to the African Union. To say the African Union, to its credit, um, uh, created a, the, the goal, I think, of President Wad was just to get, get it off his plate and, and have, you know, ask other African leaders like Omar el-Bashir and, and you know, and uh, Robert Mugabe and what to be done with this and Habre. The answer is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. To his credit, the African Union um, created a legal committee to look at the issue. And they said, Senegal, you have, if you don't want him sent to Belgium, um, if you don't want another African leader prosecuted in Europe, um, Senegal, you have an obligation to prosecute. And President Wad agreed, but then spent another three or four years um, stalling. Mm-hmm. Um, and the again, it, it was the victims' um, mobilization um, when the case was first filed in Belgium. Uh, the many of your listeners may remember that Belgium used to have this very wide range of law on on universal jurisdiction that was perhaps too generous, and and it became a victim of its own generosity because there were over thirty international cases filed in Belgium. Everybody from Ariel Sharon and Fidel Castro, Arafat, Rafan Johnny, and it became too much for the Belgian. Uh, political system to handle, but we brought uh, the victims to Belgium. Uh, we brought, in particular, Suleiman Gengen, who I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's really, for me, one of the lessons of what we were able to do here was to have the victims out front and speak for themselves, because it makes all the difference. And sure. so, you know, the Belgians were like considering this law and they were repealing the law. And, and Suleiman comes from Chad and he, he describes as he describes how he was in jail and people dying around him. He describes how, you know, he took this oath that he would fight for justice. And they went to Senegal and they thought Senegal would give them justice, but Senegal didn't. And then they went to Belgium and, and how they believed in Belgium. And a Belgian judge had gone to send you know, how they place their faith in Belgium. And now you're saying that because this law is inconvenient because of Ariel Sharon and George Bush, you're going to tell us that we can't have justice. And, you know, he had people, he, I, I, we met the minister of justice. We met the prime minister. We met the head of the, you know, the different legal commissions. And they're all like, no, no, Mr. Gengen, we'll find a way to protect your case, you know? And it, I, we had people crying. And that's the kind of a thing 
um, that, you know, doesn't happen a lot in international justice, which tends to get politicized, North-South, uh, Security Council prosecutor, African. And he, when you have the people who were tortured, who came out of jail, who are fighting for justice, it's very difficult to look them in the eye and say no. Right. And so when, when the Belgian law was repealed, from pressure from the United States, which didn't like these judges running around looking at the Iraq war and things like that. The Belgian legislature passed a uh, grandfather clause that allowed, in particular, I didn't say the Chad case, but it was really designed to allow Suleiman's case to continue. And when we made those approaches Back in 2002, 2003, 2004, we created a political uh, backing in Belgium so that when Senegal didn't move forward after it said it would, there was actually pressure in Belgium, in the Senate, in the House. And, of course, Belgium has a very weird politics with the Walloons and the Flemish and the mm -hmm. conservatives. and every, We had a multi, you know, a cross-party committee on the Habre case. And we were able to get Belgium to take Senegal to the International Court of Justice, to the World Court, right. um, Belgium versus Senegal. Very rare. I mean, we saw it last year with, with um, Gambia taking uh, Myanmar to the International Court of Justice mm -hmm. um, for genocide against the Rohingya. Very, very rare that a country will stand up uh, for human rights principles. Um, in, in such a dramatic way. You know, take going to the International Court of Justice is diplomatic, the legal equivalent of war, basically. Right. And you know, for, for a European country to take an African country um, to the ICJ um, requires a huge political will. And because of the victims, because of what Soleiman had done in, in those meetings, because of um, the support that we had uh, cultivated within Belgium. We got Belgium to take Senegal to the International Court of Justice. And in 2012, so this is, uh, I'm collapsing a lot of things that happened along the way, but in 2012, two major developments happened that all of a sudden allowed us to, to walk through the door. One was that the International Court of Justice ruled unanimously uh, in the case of Belgium versus Senegal, that Senegal had a legal obligation uh, to bring Habre to justice or to extradite him, and that they had to bring him, prosecute him, quote, without further delay, unquote, unless they extradited him. Mm -hmm. um, and the same year, two months, or actually just uh, at the time the case was being argued, um, President Wad was defeated uh, by a new president, Macky Sall, uh, who became president of Senegal. Mm -hmm. And during those 12 years that we were working on the case, the victims must have made at least 30 visits from Senate, from Chad to Senegal to meet everybody, to meet newspapers, to meet politicians. And they had met with Macky Sall. Um, they had done the same thing with Suleiman had looked him in the eye. In fact, there were Senegalese a Senegalese merchant who had survived Habre's jails, who was, who, who, and who leads the campaign in Senegal. Um, 
very kind of a Senegalese everyman, the kind of a Senegalese guy you see on the street corners in Paris or New York selling, right. you know, trinkets. And yeah. selling. he had been doing that in Chad and was arrested and he was somebody and his, his colleague was died in prison and he was able to get out because the Senegalese government heard about it. And he became the lead activist in, in, in Senegal, a man who, you know, just an everyman. Um, who uh, spoke in local language in Wolof, and each time the Chadians would go from Chad to Senegal to, to uh, you know, to, to meet people, to, to, to try to build uh, momentum, uh, Abdurrahman, Abdu, would meet them, and we would go around, and Abdu would take them around to the religious leaders and, and sacrifice cows, and, you know, all the, you know, on the holy days, and, and it really became a, uh, uh, you know, a very grassroots thing. Anyway, Mackie Sal gets elected. Mackie Sal had promised uh, Abdu and the victims from Chad that if he became president, he would make sure that the law was followed and that justice was done. And, and much to our surprise, um, he and the new prime uh, uh, justice minister, Aminata Touré, uh, when they were elected, they said, and the ICJ ruled. Um, they set about setting up, they reached out to the African Union and they created a special tribunal uh, to prosecute the crimes under of Habre's regime. And so finally in, in 2012, 2013, the court was set up and, and finally in 2015 the um, the trial began. Wow. So he so Habre was living in Senegal this entire time, right? 1990 until 2015. So Habre was living in Senegal. He had two he lived in two mansions on the Atlantic coast um with his two wives. Um he was living he had taken the money that he had stolen from the Chadian treasury and he would use that money to build a network of support um, to he gave money to the to the to the mosques. He gave money to politicians, um, and he was. He, I think he thought this we would never catch up to him. And um, finally, on July first, I think two thousand thirteen, uh, the week after President Obama had visited Senegal. Um, which was coincidental, but, but also important in that the United States supported Hassan Habre. The United States had brought, as I mentioned, had brought him to power. Um, they had, uh, until the very last minute, even after France abandoned Habre, uh, the United States supported him. But yet we were able, again, I, I remember being in Washington with Soleiman, with Jacqueline Mudena, the Chadian, the victim's Chadian lawyer, another hero of this story. This is a woman who was in exile under Hissen Habre, very one of the first women lawyers in Chad. Um, her father had been killed by, a, a, by, by the first uh, independent, uh, post-independence president. Jacqueline Mudena took on the victim's case. Um, not only their case in, Ch in Senegal against Hissen Habre, but even more dangerously, um, the case that the victims then brought in Chad against Habre's accomplices, who remained, many of them, in positions of power. We wrote a report that showed that 
41 of Habre's um, accomplices who had been accused of torture um, were still in important political and, and security positions in Chad. Wow. And much more, uh, uh, much more uh, uh, perilously than the case in, in, in Senegal against Hassan Habre, the victims with ja- Suleiman, with Jacqueline as their lawyer, filed a case in Chad uh, against many of them, against, I think, 28 um, uh, uh, agents of the political police. And one of them had a grenade thrown at Jacqueline, and she, she, had, she survived. She was just hospitalized. She had still walking shrapnel in her leg. And yet, um, yet she, after her injuries were, I mean, she still walks with, 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 with difficulty. Um, she became the, the victim's lead lawyer. Um, and we, I, I forget, <laughs> I forget where, where, where we were headed with this, but, um, uh, you know, this was the team. Uh, you, uh, you, we had a, 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 a coordinating committee with Suleiman, Jacqueline, myself, uh, Ayun team, the leading uh, activist in Senegal. Um, and we just never gave up. And, and in finally, the Chadian government brought to trial uh, the 21 of the political police. Uh, uh, agents or and security agents, and just before the the trial in Senegal of Hassan Habre, there was a, there was an equally important trial in Chad in which 21 of Habre's accomplices mm-hmm. uh, were tried and prosecuted. It was a hurried trial. We felt that part of it that it was that the Chadian government was trying to to, to control the trial, um, but it was still a very dramatic moment. Uh, for justice in Chad, and they were found guilty. And they were twenty-one of the twenty-two were found guilty, and they were sentenced to very long terms. Most of them, I think, almost all of them are unfortunately are out now. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, there's there's been a lot of and um, a lot of ill feeling by the victims over that because also the government and I should hopefully we'll get to talk about this as well but in both trials the trial in Senegal and the trial in Chad the victims were awarded huge sums of money which they have not yet collected and and so the work is still not done um do you know how much they were uh, awarded yeah I mean they 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 were awarded um a total of $150 million in, in, in Chad and, and $120 million in Senegal. Um, wow. Uh, which would make all of them, I mean, I mean, when you divide it up among the number of victims, it, it's not huge. I mean, it comes out to about 30000 or 60000 if you add them together, which is, but for Chad, that's enough for a family to live on forever in Chad. But of course, sure. the problem is that, um, that uh, the Chadian government has refused to 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 make the payments, and in Senegal, um, Habre has hidden his money. We're trying to find it. Um, the African Union was supposed to set up a trust fund, um, which has still not, four years later, become operationalized. So, unfortunately, for these very poor people, um, who 
you know, who, who changed the world by, by the determination and by their activism. Right. Um, uh, they are still as poor as, as they were when they began. In what is one of the poorest countries on earth already, right? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I go there. I was, I, last time I was there was in February, um, before all this COVID stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, we, you know, I was sitting in the courtyard where the Victims Association is. It's a dusty courtyard in a nondescript neighborhood in the middle of a village, you know, the middle of a town, in the middle of the desert with these people who had changed history, who had brought their dictator to justice. Amazing. You know, Rama and, and Khadija and Jean and Clement, these people had fought and fought and they had brought their dictator to justice, put him in jail. Um, And, you know, when you look at international justice, you look at the International Criminal Court, which has cost $1.6 billion, I think, and has only convicted so far of atrocity crimes um, a few rebel leaders. Uh, right. When you look at the special tribunal for Lebanon, which is giving its verdict uh, these days, um, that cost also a billion, uh, upwards of a billion dollars and, and has no defendants in the dock. Um, the Hiss and Habre trial cost the international community $10 million, which is a lot of money to you and me, but it's peanuts. And mm-hmm. the reason that they were able to do it was because the victims had done all the work. Um, and, right. uh, and yet, you know, there's no fund for them. There's no, um, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no international recognition, um, of their, of their plight. And so it's very frustrating. Does, um, does anybody know how, mu- how much m- money Habre stole when he fled the country in 1990? Well, we, we know that in the last couple of days, I mean, there wasn't a huge amount left in the Treasury um, that he cut himself a check. As Idris Deby's troops were, were marching on Jemena, he cut himself a check. Uh, I think it's for the equivalent today of about $14 million, which is not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that Saddam Hussein gave him cash, once gave him a briefcase with cash with a million dollars. We know that during his rule, um, he, you know, he embezzled a lot of money out. But as far as we know, all of that money has been put, you know, in, in the name of his family, in the name of, of other people. We're trying to trace the money. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not the easiest thing to do. We don't know. Um, I mean, he used that money, as I said, to build, um, po- you know, a political um, shield um and protection in Senegal, but presumably this money uh, is not in the in the corner bank of some bank in downtown Dakar, that's right? Correct. I mean, it's in that's some correct. tax haven somewhere, right? With a country with banking secrecy, I would presume. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, we're trying to. I mean, it's a longer story because theoretically, this was what the African Union Trust Fund was supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. and we've actually lined up. All of we've lined up several of the world's leading experts in asset tracing who are ready to work on, you know, on commission or 
for a fee for the African Union uh, right, to right. find this money. Um, and the African Union, which was very instrumental in bringing the trial about, um, this just does not just seems to have lost interest. And in fact, when I was in Chad uh, uh, in February, I was on my way to uh, together with the president of the Victims Association. We went, as we always do, to the African Union uh, a summit to to plead our case. And the president of the Afri, the chairman of the Commission of the African Union, said publicly that the trust fund was going to be set up within a matter of months, and and it has not been. Right, right. So just back to the trial and everything. So when he was put yeah. on his final, the final leg of trial, shall we say, the final phase, um, tell us about that. Like, you know, what led up to the actual conviction and sentencing? So the trial itself um, began in uh, on my birthday. I should say the two major events in this case, both the the decision of the International Court of Justice on July 20th, 2012, and the trial on July 20th, 2015, coincided with my birthday, which was very nice. Hey, hey. Um, um, but the trial itself was, you know, it was three months uh, uh, or three and a half months trial. Um, it was quite amazing. You had um, over 90 witnesses. You had... Um, a number of victims um, came to testify and, and, you know, testified not only as victims, but as, as activists. It was, it was you know, Suleiman Gengang, when he testified, he began by saying, you know, I've, he told his story. He said, I've been fighting for this because of my, you know, because of my um, uh, tenacity and my obsession um, you know, I was fired from my job as he was. I was hounded into exile by Habre's um, henchmen. But because of that tenacity, I'm here today before you to tell our story. Wow. When there was, um, you know, we had people who, um, a woman who had been sent, I mean, the probably the big, uh, because most of the evidence was already known, um, but probably the big news of the trial was a group of women uh, who had been sent as sexual slaves, uh, who had been arrested and sent to the desert to be sexual slaves for Hussein Habre's army. Mm. And one of them, Kaltuma uh, 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 Defala, uh, I remember so clearly she goes to said, you know, I feel so strong to be here today. I'm now talking the man who was the powerful man in Chad is sitting there and now I'm the powerful one and he has to listen to me. Right. And, you know, that was a sentiment that many people felt. And, right. and it was the New York Times would write later that never in a trial of mass atrocities has the voice of victims been so dominant. Fantastic. Um, you know, this was a trial. Everybody recognized that this was a trial. That was happening because of what the victims had done, right. because the victims had created this and that they were the architects. And Habre recognizes, well, Habre refused, it should be said, Habre refused to participate in the trial. He had to be dragged, literally kicking and screaming into the courtroom. 
Um, he instructed his lawyers not to participate. Um, the court appointed lawyers. Um, even as Habre's lawyers sat in the gallery listening and, and writing in, in a blog talking about how the trial was unfair, um, there were court-appointed lawyers who did their best. I think it was a difficult situation because Habre refused even to talk to them, and they uh, didn't have a huge amount of time to prepare. Um, but the trial itself, I mean, we had, there were historical, this began with context witnesses, historical witnesses, um, uh, statistical, uh, Patrick Ball, the status, who you know, I think, Scott. I do. Yeah, um, his wife was one of the guests on the podcast uh, some time ago, or girlfriend. Yeah, well, yeah. Patrick mm-hmm. is, 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 you know, the statistician of the human rights movement. And Absolutely. He yeah. um, was able to spin out statistics based on the political police documents that we had found and to, to look at, you know, 1,209 cases of people who died in detention in just in these documents, over 12,000 victims of arbitrary arrest and, and torture. Um, he was able to show that the mortality rate in the Habre's prisons were greater than that of, you know, Russian prisoners of Germany or, of you know, prisoners in, in, in Japan. Um, uh, we had um, forensic teams that had dug, or Argentine forensic team that had dug up mass graves. Um, mm-hmm. And then you had, you know, people who, uh, from the inside, um, there was a former, uh, one of the people who had been very, uh, a former uh, 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 director, uh, assistant director of the um, of Habre's political police, who was living in exile in in Paris, and who 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 had been waiting twenty years to unburden himself about what he had done and what he had seen. Who testified, um, and uh, we had a handwriting expert who was able to show that it was Habre who wrote on these documents. For instance, that no prisoner of war can can you know, can leave unless it's because he died. And so the evidence was, was, was very wow. overwhelming. Um, uh, the women, uh, one woman, Khadija Zidane Hassan, uh, uh, told the court that she had been raped by Hissen Habre. Oh my. Um, uh, and, um, these are people, I mean, I know Khadija, I talked to Khadija on the phone yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. Somebody who, I mean, these are people with whom I have been in contact for 20 years. Um, uh, uh, and Habre was uh, convicted then. I mean, when, when I have to say, you know, each day going into court and seeing Hissen Habre there with his, I mean, he, he refused to speak a word. He spoke in the beginning and at the end just to you know, say that this is a farce, that this is, a, I mean, this mm-hmm. is a man who was brought to power by the U.S., by Ronald Reagan, but he said, you know, this is imperialist, you know. Yeah, right. um, uh, but, and he refused even to look at the witnesses, the, mm. the women who um, he had sent to the camp, um, uh, Khadija, uh, who described being raped, um, people who had been his collaborators and who he threw in prison. He didn't even look at them. He never spoke. Um, But, you know, each day in court, just the feeling that he was there, that he'd done this, 
you know, so many people along the way told us, uh, you know, this will never happen. Right. You don't understand how Africa works. You don't understand the U.S. and France supported him. They're never going to let him be prosecuted. The African, the trade union of African heads of state, they're never going to let this happen. And, you know, through the tenacity and the perseverance of the victims and, and you know, we were able to make this happen. And Amazing. And so when Finally, when did the final judgment come down? What year was it? And what was so the, the sentence? The final judgment came down on, on March 30th, um, 2016. Mm-hmm. And um, the judges, this was a special court created between Senegal and the African Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was within the courts of Senegal, but the chair, the president of the tribunal was an, was a judge from Burkina Faso. Mm-hmm. And, um, he delivered the judgment and he looked at, I remember looked at his Habre and he said, you know, guilty. I mean, he obviously, you know, he, he, for 20 minutes, he read a, a summary of the judgment. And, and as he read it, I was, it was, you know, you, you always wonder as you're working on these things, uh, because the judges did not show their hand, um, you don't know what they're thinking. Sure. Um, as, as as an advocate, as a lawyer, I try to look at things lucidly from a neutral perspective and tear holes and everything. And and yet, when when the judge started talking about uh, in his summary, you could see that basically um, they accepted what the victims had had presented. Um, and he, conv- he convicted Habre of, of crimes against humanity, of torture, of war crimes, and sentenced him to life imprisonment. Wow. I bet you there was one, one split second when, you, when he was reading the judgment when you finally realized he was going to find him guilty. You remember that yeah, moment? Yeah. Remember I mean, that moment? moment when it was, well, it was actually it was interesting because the, 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 you know, as they read the judgment, you first talk, I mean, there's a certain logical order where you first talk about the crimes and then you talk about Habre's personal involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the, the defense was saying, well, these crimes may have been committed, but he was the president of the country, had nothing to do with any of this. And this. Right, so the first right. time that um, the first time that the crime itself was intimately linked to who Hissan Habre was, was actually the rape of Khadija Hassan. Right. Because you didn't have to go into the long uh, study and and so the first time he said he used the word responsible was when he talked about Khadija um and and then as it you know I'm sitting there I you know the I think the guardian quoted me is like wow I can't believe this man um <laughs> and I think I said he, I think I I that's not even the word I used um but um because she was sitting behind, right behind us. Um, uh, and, you know, it was a huge vindication um, for, for, for what we had done. I mean, it was, you know. I mean, so many years, so many years, 20, well, what is it? Like 26 years, years after he was ousted. Um, it took right. that long, and it took you guys years seventeen years, right, of doing the legal work. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've been working on it from nineteen ninety nine, so that was seventeen, almost seventeen years that I've Amazing. been working on the case. Amazing. Um, you know, and and, and what what ma- what many listeners, of course, won't necessarily realize unless they're human rights 
activists already is that you know when you enter the the field of working in human rights you have to enter it with the foreknowledge that you're going to lose most of the time <laughs> you know victories <laughs> victories happen um but sometimes you have to actively choose your struggle to ensure that you get a victory every so often because you're fighting against the odds uphill battles against you know all the powers that can be and sometimes you win but a lot of times um you don't and this is just a classic example of of perseverance with actual human rights victims and another thing just to add is that you know i i had the pleasure of meeting suleiman a couple of times in uh, brussels and another thing i think a lot of ordinary people don't realize um is the incredible um, how how incredibly nice so many human rights victims are, you know? What incredibly powerful, dignified, compassionate, gentle, totally great, amazing people, you know, um, that they are and that they were before they were victims and that they somehow maintain that status even after they've been through so much. And, um, and they just, they're just such superior beings compared to the culprits of the crimes that were, you know, carried out against them. And that is just so often the case all around the world. And, and certainly in the form of Suleiman, that's most definitely the case. And, and I'm sure all the others you know, I as think, well. As you say, Scott, I mean, I think one of the, one of the great rewards of doing the work that we do um, in social justice is the people we get to work with. Right. Um, you know, I feel really privileged in my career to have worked with people like Suleiman, um, Bobby Duval in Haiti, um, you know, uh, Baba Haidara in, in Gambia, um, you know, just people who have taken their suffering, who have harnessed their suffering into, you know, into a, a, a project for social change. People who said, you know, we are not, and I'm sure you've seen this too, Scott, when you see people who are displaced or whatever, people, people who just look like they've given up. You and then bet. there are other people who say, we're going to fight. Yeah. And as a human rights activist internationally, you get to work with people who've chosen to stand and fight. And, and that for me has been a real privilege all over the world. No question. And, we, you know, we hope we live to see the day where every single human rights violation does actually get a degree of justice in the end, because it still remains a, a rarity that human rights violation perpetrators are truly held to account, given the scale of human rights abuses around the it world. It is. It is unfortunately still the case that... Um, you know, as you mentioned before, if you kill a lot of people, you get exile. Um, you know, if you, the odds are still with in favor of people getting away with 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 crimes, and and the tables have turned somewhat. I mean, maybe we can talk about where international next time where international justice goes from here. But the Habre case, unfortunately, is one of the few bright spots uh, these days. So, um, are, Habre is currently sitting in prison somewhere in Senegal. Is that the reality of the situation? So, Habre has been Habre is still in prison. Um, there have been a lot of back and forth 
um, about, I mean, he's been trying, fighting to get out. He's been using, we've, we've had to go back to the UN, to the Committee Against Torture, um, to the president. He was released um, for, for COVID reasons um, uh, and for 60 days. And actually, we thought that was probably the last time he was going to be prison. He was actually went back to prison. How old um, is he now, by the so way? He is uh, about 74, 75. Right. Um, he's supposed to be in good health, um, although his family says he's not. Um, but he does have, obviously, you know, as a human rights activist, um, we could not countenance him being mistreated or poorly treated in prison. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't, I, it would be really horrible if, if you know, if, something happened that was prison related I is, mean, is COVID, he is he in the general killer. population of, of a prison or does he have a special wing like many he had a special cell he had a mm-hmm. special cell until recently i don't know since he went back last month i don't know where he what he is but previously he had a special cell to his own which is why we didn't think he needed in fact to be released for covid reasons yeah right right wow what a story what a story and you know that it's another great example um, of, you know, Reed Brody using his one life and his human rights career to really help bring about, you know, true fundamental change, which, which you know, obviously continues to have an impact today and will hopefully, you know, continue far into the future in one more stepping stone in holding perpetrators of large-scale human rights violations, crimes against humanity, war crimes accountable um, so that they happen less and less frequently. And, you know, today, speaking of dictators, you know, there's a mass uprising on the streets of Minsk in Belarus against uh, Lukashenko, who's been in power there for, I think, 26 years, um, who uh, fought a scandalously uh, corrupt election uh, a few days ago, a few weeks ago, which uh, he, of course, declared himself the victor of. So, um, obviously, the world is nowhere near uh, the point where we can say that we are dictator-free. And, you know, let's hope that that can be one of the things that um, that COVID, as a side effect, brings out in the world, the, this kind of understanding that of, of, of all the top worst performers in tackling COVID in terms of cases, in terms of deaths, in terms of, of official government responses, um, the vast majority of the top 10 are aspirational dictators or <laughs> authoritarian-minded leaders who claim to be nationalistic, who claim to care about their population, who claim to want to make their countries great again, etc., and in fact turn the other way when it comes to doing things which could have actually benefited the people who are getting sick and dying so i think with that let's um let's thank reed again for the second part of this three-part series on dealing with the dictators and we've we've talked about reed's role in bringing down pinochet and his role in in giving a degree of justice to the victims of his and Habre of Chad. And next time we'll talk about the dictators of today and the state of international criminal law. I know Reed, you were of course involved in the case you mentioned earlier, the, the recent case of Gambia against 
Myanmar. Um, so Myanmar. maybe we'll explore the possibilities of what will happen in Myanmar with regard to uh, current and former government officials there that may be complicit in human rights violations and a whole range of other countries uh, where injustices continue to be carried out with impunity. Um, yeah, so with that, thanks again, Reid. So do I, so do I. So thanks again. Um, that was Reed Brody of Human Rights Watch, a.k.a. the Dictator Hunter, or as he more likes to be known as the Victim Assister. <laughs> and um, we will be back with episode 30, uh, which will be released uh, this coming Saturday. So have a listen to that. It's a different type of episode. And... Um, We hope you'll like that too. So take care, everybody. Bye.